We're basically going to start this afternoon with a, a meditation, but I just want to hit the last two quotations from the karma section before we move on. And particularly this uh, quotation number 18. Again, the teacher that we uh, have quoted earlier, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. If you're not familiar with him, he's a teacher in the Hindu tradition called Advaita Vedanta, but his dharma is very powerful and very close to Buddhism. If you don't know him, I really recommend his book called I Am That. I Am That. And this, his name is on um, page three. So I'll just read this quotation so we'll um, move right along. He usually works in the form of dialogue with people who come to see him. Uh, Worked, I should say. He lived in um, Bombay, I think. But he died in the 1990s, so he's no longer living. But he met with people and engaged in dialogue with people who came. So a questioner had, had asked him something about this word destiny. Maharaj, your own will has been the backbone of your destiny. The questioner, surely karma interfered. Maharaj, karma shapes the circumstances of your life. The attitudes are your own. Ultimately, your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. Your character shapes your life and you alone can shape your character. This is a very strong statement about the power of our actions with intention. They really do shape our lives and why it's important to be uh, clear in our actions. And then this last quotation, number 19, the Buddha again describing the awakening under the Bodhi tree. When I knew and saw thus, my mind was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of becoming, and from the taint of ignorance. I directly knew birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming to any state of being. His declaration of his own awakening through what's called the destruction of the taints. These are three forces that are deeply conditioned in the mind, And until we see through them and are free from them, they lead to future renewed existence. Okay, so, ready for meditation? Okay. (laughs) More handouts will be coming. So I mentioned that we were going to hit four or five main areas today. Emptiness of self, Emptiness of phenomena, a meditation on emptiness, emptiness and awareness, and finally compassion. So this is going to be the third of those. This is going to be a meditation on uh, emptiness as a meditation. So I hope you'll see the connection as we uh, go into it. Now in this meditation I'm going to ask you to do some imagination and a little bit of visualization. So it's not strictly a mindfulness practice until closer to the end. So here you can let your uh, mind be a little bit active and uh, creative in this process. So again, begin please by sitting comfortably.
relaxing into your experience of sitting. Feeling the ease in the body posture and also a sense of alertness, uprightness. And this meditation will be an investigation of different aspects of being here. So first I'm going to ask you uh, to remember that we're located on Birch Street in Redwood City. And you probably drove to get here and so you're a little bit familiar with the, the neighborhood around here. Birch Street and Hopkins, perhaps El Camino and Broadway, a little further afield, the, the freeway 101. And so I'm going to ask you to take a kind of aerial view of here and let yourself remember or imagine what it might look like if you were above looking down on IMC and the surrounding blocks. And you'll get a sense of the buildings, this building, a bit institutional, the houses and residential sections nearby. The grid of roads traffic of the cars. As you tune into the traffic of the cars, you think about the busyness, people going about their errands, or their recreation, or visiting family on this Saturday. The commercial areas, Restaurants on Broadway, stores and gas stations on El Camino, people seeing to their errands, moving around. And then all the vegetation the lawns, the trees, the gardens, the flowers. And as you connect with that vision of the busyness of this daily life, the cars and people and buildings and shops. Let your mind make any associations that come in. Other times you've been here, times you've driven here or away, anything you know of the neighborhood, restaurants or shops you visited nearby. Can let any of those memories and connections come in. 
Now this is going to be a practice of simplifying our perceptions. So now we're going to take a little different look of here. And we're going to come into this room, the meditation room of the Insight Meditation Center of Redwood City. Coming into this room and maybe still you have a little bit of a overview of the space. If you were looking down from the ceiling, you'd be able to see the carpet, the chairs, the risers. cushions, mats. The Buddha statue. The sound system and speakers. You might remember other times you've been in this room. other experiences you've had here. Let your mind make those associations. And noticing all the people in the room. Some you may know, you may know really well fellow Sangha members, friends. Some you may not have met before. Again, if associations come to mind with any of the people who are here, just let those associations happen. any memories, any feelings. And even within this room, we still hear the noise from outside. We get little reminders of the environment, the sounds of the traffic, maybe a little wind. But in coming into this meditation hall, there's a vibration of some bodily stillness as we're all seated in meditation. And now simplifying the perceptions a step further, we're still here, we're in the meditation hall, but we're only paying attention to the container, the physical container. 
of the floors, the walls, and the ceiling. Just focusing your attention on these containing elements, ceiling, walls, floors, If you remember what they look like, that's fine. If you need to imagine a little bit, that's fine. And in the walls include the windows. So we're dropping off a lot of associations, a lot of other elements simplifying the perceptions, the floors, walls, and ceiling. And now we'll simplify the perception a little more still. Still talking about being here. And now just open to the space that's enclosed in this room. The floors, walls, and ceilings are here to enclose a place where we can be warm and dry. And now just focusing on that space, that originally empty space, just become a little bit filled today, but not completely full. Still a lot of space. And at this point, you may be able to shift from imagining the space to receiving a felt sense of the space. In fact, the space is around your body as you sit. And the same space extends outward to the walls, floors, and ceiling. So if you can get a felt sense of the space around your body Just notice that.
you know it's part of the same space as in the whole room. But you don't have to imagine it filling the room. Just feel that space, however far it extends. Now because that space around your body is already here, you don't have to do anything to create a sense of it or imagine it. Just feel into it. And so not particularly trying hard, just letting yourself relax into that sense of space. Whatever size it's felt to be. Just perceiving space. Sounds will come and go, thoughts will come and go, sensations, but we don't have to focus on them. Letting them be mostly in the background and our focus stays with this felt sense of space. And then we might take the perception one step further. If this felt sense is being known, then it's within your awareness. See if you can notice the awareness of the space, still here. Space being known and felt through the faculty of awareness, noticing the awareness.
and relaxing even further. No effort is needed to be aware. Awareness is here. Relaxing, letting that awareness hold you. So I'm curious, did you feel any change as that meditation went on from the overview of the neighborhood as we got into the meditation hall and moved into space and then awareness? Anything shift? What happened? Yeah, can we get a mic just if you just pass it right back? For me, um, a lot of it was actually just the settling into this room and feeling a real sense of safety. Uh Um, Being able to feel like the space was really holding me and holding everyone in here. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was something really deeply settling about just feeling into the energy of just the space, just the emptiness. that was really beautiful. Mm, mm, lovely. So first coming into the room was simpler and she felt held by the energy of the group meditating together. And that was settling. And then when she turned to the awareness, sorry, to the space, that felt even simpler and more settling to notice. Yeah, thank you. Did anybody else feel that sort of move from more busy to more settled? Yeah. Yes, please. I felt like I was expanding into this space as if I was becoming the space. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, felt like the, there was a becoming of the space that uh, sort of the edges moved out. Did you find it hard to tell the difference between where you ended and the space began? Yeah. So this kind of meditation can kind of soften the boundaries 
between what we take to be ourself, what we take to be the space, and the, the rest of what's happening. And how did that, how did that feel? What, what shifts did you feel internally as that was happening? Well, I felt lighter. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Felt lighter from that. Yeah. Opening into space often brings a sense of lightness and often brings a sense of settling and tranquility. Very nice. Thanks. Yeah. Mike is coming. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Things kept, kept getting simpler mm-hmm. until it, it got simplest. Um, just realizing I don't have to do anything to be aware. Like awareness wants to happen. And basically I have to keep it from happening if it's not going to happen. So, I mean, anyway, but it yeah. got to a very simple uh, yeah. experience. Things just got simpler to the point where he realized he didn't have to make an effort to be aware because awareness is already happening. So the purpose of this meditation is exactly what the three of you described. It's to let go of the busyness because the mind constructs associations and memories and emotions out of anything we'll turn our attention to. And then we come into a simpler part of the experience, whether it's opening to space, opening to awareness, feeling that expansion, and we can just settle and relax. So this last part, movement into space, movement into awareness, is considered a meditation on emptiness. The Buddha's word for it was abiding in emptiness. So at the end of a, an event recently, going over some of the same material, someone said, but I want you to teach us how to be empty. This meditation is how to be empty. You let go of more associations, more memories, more connections. Come in, make it simple, simple, simple space and awareness. And that's pretty empty. And with the increasing emptiness and increasing simplicity comes more tranquility. In a way, this is the key to it. There's more peace, there's more ease, there's relaxation when you simplify the perceptions and let yourself settle. You let go of more doing. You don't have to effort to be aware. It's already here. You let go of the doing, you can relax. More peace. Question? Yeah. Is there a mic handy? Actually, this was difficult for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a different experience. I felt when... There were a couple things that you said. Um, so I think, let's take the example of you coming to IMC, to this room. Mm-hmm. And you said something about um, connect with the experiences you may have had. Did, did you say something like let, that? Let any associations come. Yeah, that was just opening the fire for me. That. <laughs> it was just like all the stories of people I've met here. And <laughs> just that like, was shut up. <laughs> That was the point. Oh, really? Yeah, that was the point. But so is it opening to this and then releasing it? So did anybody else notice that when I talked about the associations either to the neighborhood or to here that the thoughts started boom, boom, boom? That's where our minds usually go. 
is associations and memories. Oh, so I, actually I didn't do it wrong then. No, no, no. <laughs> oh. That was part of the point. Oh. That when we open up to these other perceptions and let associations come in, the mind can get really stirred up. Very busy, very active, and it brings in a lot of emotions, doesn't it? can bring in a lot of emotions. And then, coming into the simplicity of just the walls, floor, ceiling, and then the space and then the awareness, hopefully there's a feeling of letting go of a lot of that. Yeah, it, it took effort, though, because I was okay. really... Yeah, um, it feels a, lot, a lot had been stirred up. Yes, a lot harder than in regular meditation when I have mm-hmm. thoughts. Like, it just felt activated. Yeah, I was giving you trouble. <laughs> But I really wanted to illustrate sort of where the mind will go if we let it just follow its course and habits. And then to have that be the contrast to the simplicity of just space and awareness. So if you found this helpful in your daily meditation, you can just go directly to space and awareness. You don't have to space out first. But it is interesting to see when perceptions are more complicated what that does to the inner experience of tranquility because it stirs it up. And so it becomes a choice. You have a choice in your meditation whether you want to follow the associations and memories and projections into all the directions they go or you want to stay really simple. Space and awareness and relax. So, this is a meditation that is called by the Buddha abiding in emptiness. So are you, so you're suggesting if we catch ourselves in papancha just to let go of it and feel the space that we're we're sitting in at that moment and then be aware of the space. Yeah. Yes. If you find yourself spinning out in a lot of proliferating thoughts, what we call papancha, then shift to just noticing the space. Make it really simple. And once you've noticed the space, it can be just a little turn to notice the awareness that's knowing the space. Right? They're not actually separate. But awareness is right there, knowing or feeling the space. So either one, whether... Space might be a better way in or awareness might be a better way in. Let that be the simple place. You can bring your attention. If you give your attention something simple, it can let go of what's complicated. If you don't give it anything else, it will tend to go on with what's complicated. So that's why directing it to a new focus, space or awareness, helps it let go of what it's been um, obsessing about. Yes, can we get a mic? Could I just clarify, when you say um, space, you mean literally like the empty space around me? Okay, I just want to make sure I understood that. Yes, uh, the empty space around the body, which then is the same empty space that's in the rest of the room, right? So in the beginning, we were kind of imagining the empty space maybe out of, created by walls, floor, ceiling, But then as you start to feel into it, you can start from a felt sense of the space around your body and realize that that's the same space. So, you know, there are a couple of ways to play with this. One is when you're starting to feel the space around your body, ask, is there an edge to it? Mm 
It may feel small, right? Oh, my body's not very big. The space around it is very big. But ask, is there an edge or a boundary? No. And so the space can be as wide as the room, can eventually become as wide as the sky. So it's a way using the little bit of space around the body to open up, to realize there's not an edge or a boundary to open up in a boundless way. That the sense of space can be felt as boundless. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I think I get in trouble because I'm a very literal thinker. I feel like there's people in the room and so they're, that's not space. The bodies and the, you know. Right. I, I th- you can think of space in one of two ways. You can think of it as the distance between objects, or you can think of it as the open thing that contains all the objects. And also, if you look on a, you know, you look on a quantum physics level, all these objects are mostly space, aren't they? Yes. We know, you know. There are also air molecules bouncing around, but they're mostly space. And so, if you want to conceptualize the feeling... Even the, the things are mostly space. But it's very, I think it's, it's useful to understand that the space around the body and the boundless space are not really different. They're not really two things. Good, thanks. So let's read um, in the section on abiding and emptiness, which is on page three. Let's see. Do we have a microphone on the left somewhere? Where'd that go? Maybe Jayla? Have you read? Oh, okay. Maybe pass it on one to your left. I think, yeah, down the floor. The floor is good. Quotation number 20. Therefore the master acts without doing anything and teaches without saying anything. Practice non-doing and everything will fall into place. So this is kind of a practice of non-doing. When you realize that you can notice awareness, but you don't have to do anything to have awareness. It's a practice of non-doing. And what non-doing does is it undoes the activity, the volitional activity of the self. The self is often trying to make things happen. I'd say almost always trying to make things happen, even in meditation. We're trying to be a little bit more calm or have a little fewer thoughts or be a little more comfortable. That effort keeps enhancing the self through volitional activity. Let go of that and there's a greater and greater sense of relaxing and just letting things happen. Takes the self out of the equation. Yes, let's see if we can pull up a mic. So it seems, <clears throat> it seems like awareness isn't volitional. What's volitional is trying to not be aware. I'd say that's basically true. Awareness is not volitional. And you notice it's not in volitional formations. Because I'm using awareness as a synonym with consciousness. Consciousness is outside of volitional formations. True. So if you would pass that back, one and number 21 please. A bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of village, 
not attending to the perception of people, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. His mind enters into that perception of forest and acquires confidence, steadiness, and decision. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of village or people, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. Good, thank you. So you have to imagine that this is the Buddha speaking to a bunch of forest dwellers and leading the meditation that we just went through. They are living in a little monastic setting on the edge of a village, but that is actually in the forest. So the village here is the symbol of busy daily life, just like the cars and shops on the street outside for us were the image of the busy daily life of Redwood City. So when we let go of the perception of that and all the hustle and bustle of the activity and the people, and we came into, let's say, just the perception of walls, ceiling, floors, then there was only enough disturbance as around wall, ceiling, and floor. And we'd let go of the disturbance of out there and the people. And then we simplified it another couple of levels with space and awareness. So this is a, a based on a discourse from the Majjhima, number 121. The name of that discourse is uh, The Shorter Discourse on Emptiness. So when I first read it, I thought, wow, this is going to be a great philosophical statement. It's not. It's meditation instructions. So this is just an adaptation of those instructions to our our setting here. So feel free to to play with this. I would play with it more. And then we get, in quotation 22, the result. Thus he regards it as empty of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present. Thus, this is present. This is genuine, undistorted, pure descent into emptiness. Yeah, thank you. So it is empty of what is not there. So what is not, in our case, here? The village, the traffic, the busyness, the shops, the people. It's empty of all that. And so what is here? Walls, floor, ceiling, space, awareness. And they're people. But we don't associate so much. Just people. And then we have a really nice quotation on emptiness from uh, Ajahn Jeff, number 23. Emptiness is a mode of perception, a way of looking at experience. It adds nothing to and takes nothing away from the raw data of physical and mental events. So this is a definition of emptiness, you might say, as a meditation. When we are able to be in the present moment, not add anything to or take anything away from what's naturally presenting itself, we are abiding in emptiness. This is the genuine, undistorted, pure descent into emptiness according to the Buddha. This is not as easy as it sounds. (laughs) You may have noticed that. Due to our tendency to papancha, I'll tell you a little story. One time I was meditating, I was on a meditation retreat in England. It was over the summer. It was the precursor to Gaia House, if any of you know Gaia House. Uh, They had a rented facility. It was an old farmhouse uh, on the edge of a little village in uh, Warwickshire. 
So I was meditating one late afternoon, sort of late afternoon into evening in the summer. I was doing standing meditation out in the back garden. So it was a grassy lawn and I was standing under a tree. And at that time in my practice, a lot of fear was coming up. It wasn't related to anything specific that I could put my finger on, but I was just having a bunch of fear. Looking back, I see it was just the mind emptying itself of the accumulation of that emotion over years of life and just kind of unloading it. But it was not pleasant. It was coming up strongly and it wasn't pleasant. So I was meditating, standing under the tree with my eyes closed. A lot of fear was coming. It was very difficult to deal with. I hadn't, at that point, developed equanimity with the fear. And at a certain point, I just needed a break. And so I opened my eyes. It was a beautiful summer evening. There was that uh, golden light of the setting sun that was filling the garden, filling the tree. The tree was blossoming still with white flowers. There were birds singing in the background. You know those birds that are on the Downton Abbey soundtrack? <laughs> coo 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 Yeah, the morning doves. That's what you put in the English soundtrack if you want to establish that it's in England. They were going, and the evening air was just so soft and pleasant. It wasn't too hot, wasn't too cool, a little bit humid, just very light. Everything was extremely delightful and inviting. And I looked around, and I just said to myself, pretty scary world, isn't it? (laughs) And I just had to laugh because the environment was so beautiful, so supportive, so inviting, and I was filling it with fear. That was just a projection. A projection onto the world as being a scary place when it wasn't. So in just that sort of peek into emptiness, I could let go. I could let go of the fear. That's a beautiful summer evening in England. But how often are we bringing something else into the moment? You know, expecting that it's going to be a certain way or demanding that it conform to what we want. Those are projections onto a natural state of things that is empty if we just leave it alone. So this is a description of a significant um, meditative state, as the Buddha said, characterized by confidence steadiness and decision that I don't want to underplay. It's a significant meditation. But in more colloquial terms, we could say that the mind is empty when it's not projecting into the situation. So if you're going into a difficult meeting, if you're going into relationship with someone where there's been some trouble in the past or where you might feel a strong attraction but you don't want that to be in the way, Let your mind be empty. So you can find pathways to do this. You know, you notice what kind of projections are wanting to be there and you deliberately let go of them. So when you go into meeting that person or having that encounter, you start from a place of real emptiness. And that'll be the best way to hold whatever whatever comes for you. This is kind of colloquial. We talk of it as emptying the mind or going into uh, something with an empty mind. This is the best way to approach when the situation feels a little uncertain. Is this a definition that sometimes we use for mindfulness? It looks very similar. Similar to, I would say, advanced mindfulness. 
You know, some def- this is why I get, tried to give a really simple definition of mindfulness, because some of them say it's an it's a awareness that has no judging in it, or no expectation, or no projection, or something like that. I think that's a developed or refined state of mindfulness. But when we're just beginning, we shouldn't expect too much from our mindfulness. You know, I've heard teachers say that a moment of mindfulness has to be free of greed, aversion, and delusion. I think that's a very high standard. Because in the beginning, we need to know, oh, I can be mindful even when I'm feeling scared, or even when I'm angry, or even when I'm really upset about something. So, very simply, if we just know what our experience is, that's um, the beginning of mindfulness, and then mindfulness can really grow. And when it grows up and it becomes strong, then it is like, like that. It doesn't have projections, doesn't have expectations, doesn't have judgment. It's very refined. Yeah. So we start to see that what really gets us into trouble is being in the present and starting to interfere with the way things are. We pick things up to make them be a certain way. Again, picking things up is not an innocent pastime. It comes out of greed, aversion, and delusion. So we hold on to things because we want them to stay or we want them to go. You know in order to push something away, you have to grab a hold of it first. So that's the act of grasping just as much as desire is. If you want to bring something close, you have to grasp it. But if you want to push something away, you have to grasp it too. So grasping covers both greed and aversion. And this is what we do all the time. Things come up in our experience, we take hold. Another way to describe it is clinging. Another way to describe it is fixating. Notice when the mind is in a state of openness and non-fixation. Then notice what, what happens and how it feels when we single something out We fixate on it and we take a hold of it to keep it or to push it or to change it or something. Notice how that feels. That's the disturbance, that taking a hold. So we have a number of quotes that kind of um, express this, this understanding. If you could please read 24 and 25. Nothing outside yourself can cause any trouble. You yourself make the waves in your mind. Yeah, thanks. So this is basically talking about a meditation. Not saying, you know, if you go out on the street and somebody, you know, hits you, that's a wave in your mind. But this time, in meditation, you yourself stir up the waves that are in your mind. Okay? And 25... Once the mind can stay in a state of normalcy. Trouble reading this. (laughs) I need longer arms. You'll see mental fabrications and preoccupations in their natural state of rising and disbanding Mm -hmm. the mind will be empty neutral and still either planned pleased or displeased yeah good thank you this is from a woman teacher from Thailand named Upasaka Ki 
And uh, she was one of the probably best women teachers in Thailand in the last century. She has a book translated by Ajahn Jeff called Pure and Simple. This is taken from, highly recommended. There are not so many women teachers in our Asian lineage, and she's one of the very strong ones, so I really recommend her book. Once the mind can stay in a state of normalcy, she calls it normalcy. I wish it was more normal. (laughs) It's not quite normal, but I would call it naturalness. The state of naturalness means leave it alone. Just let it be the way it is. You'll see the fabrications and preoccupations arise and, and dissolve, basically. But the mind will be empty, neutral, means it's not reaching out or moving away, and still, neither pleased nor displeased. So it's not a particularly high state, but it's definitely not a low state. It's a very balanced state. It's very restful, it's easeful, and it's non-suffering. You know, when the Buddha promised us the end of suffering, he didn't say it was going to be perpetual bliss. This state may not be perpetual bliss, but it may be perpetual peace and ease and relaxation. So it's important to have the kind of right idea about the goal. It's not always to be in a high state because highs can't last. It's a relative term. But being open and unentangled can last. And that's the, what Upasaka key is pointing to. And what stirs that up? If you could pass. Sure. Can you, uh, do you mind? We're at number 26. If mindfulness slips and the mind goes out, giving meanings to things, latching on to things, troubles will arise. So you have to keep checking on this in every moment. There's nothing else that's so worth checking on. Yeah, thank you. When the mind latches on to things, troubles will arise. This is the way it happens. So what she's pointing to is a state of resting, as you did in space or awareness, and not glomming on to the passing show that comes by. Lots of things are going to come by. Pleasant, unpleasant, seductive, frightening. Don't latch on. If you can stay balanced and natural in that place, you're out of suffering. The self gets formed when we grasp things. When we relax and settle, the self is not active. We're in a place of emptiness. Everything is just natural. That's the meditation that we're aiming for here. So it's kind of summed up by number 27. Could you? An inward staying, unentangled knowing. All outward going, knowing, cast aside. So this inward staying means we're, we're just resting. You could say resting in awareness, resting in space. And it's unentangled. We're not getting caught up in the passing show of changing sense objects. We're letting them come, we're letting them go, and we're resting This is the abiding and emptiness approach. So Suzuki Roshi expresses it really nicely also uh, in quotation 28. Let's start on, is there a mic on this side of the room? Maybe we'll start. You have one? Could you? Yeah, number 28, please. 
When you have something in your consciousness, you do not have perfect composure. The best way towards perfect composure is to forget everything. Then things will not stay in your mind so long. Things will come as they come and go as they go. Then eventually your clear, empty mind will last fairly long. So to have a firm conviction in the original emptiness of your mind is the most important thing in your practice. Suzuki Roshi. Yeah, thank you. This is a very nice summary of what we've been pointing to, the abiding and emptiness. Resting, letting things come and go, and not being disturbed by them. Not hanging on, not trying to store them up. Let them arise and let them pass. And we can maintain our composure, which is another name for steadiness, in the midst of all that. Okay, this is the general direction of the emptiness meditation. Stepping out of self, stepping into a place of ease, calm, relaxation. Any questions about this before we move on? Yes, Jayla. Got it. Um, I kind of forgot what I was going to say now. But there's something about when I feel like I have that experience of resting in the emptiness, there's actually, I mean, it's peaceful, but it's, there's this kind of um, like bubbly, effervescent aliveness. Mm-hmm. And um, it feels like a kind of just brightness and rawness of experience that's there and it seems like in fact all these things are arising from that did you mean the sense objects yeah you know there's these different appearances but my sense is like that's kind of at the base Mm -hmm. and i did have some question about that but um (laughs) so yeah it seems like there's something though about just being able to to kind of rest in that it's almost the fullness of the emptiness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, that's, yeah. Does, is that? I think that's nicely said. I think it is the fullness of the emptiness. So, you know, it's really, this is why it's really important to remember emptiness doesn't mean bleakness, doesn't mean total absence or non experience. Sometimes we think emptiness should mean, oh, I don't experience anything. I have no actual experience in the present, but that's not it. When the mind is in this state of emptiness, do you feel more or less alive? More alive. Yeah. And I think it's that alertness, alive quality that gives the brightness to the experiences. So even sense objects seem more vivid from this place than they might have otherwise. So... That when we're empty of self, things are more alive in and of themselves. And that's the fullness piece. And can just sit, like abide in that. Abide, yeah. More and more our direction is to abide there in emptiness and more and more bring that into our daily life. We find more ability to do that in daily life. Yeah, thanks. Yes. There, I think there's a mic close to you.
So this morning when um, I think Peter was asking you, um, and you took this example of the space between you two, mm-hmm. um, so I was wondering if you see uh, any, or if you could expand a little bit on um, the application of, for example, emptiness, what you're describing, in a conversation with mm-hmm. someone. Mm-hmm. Like, how does feeling the space could help me understand you better or mm-hmm. connect us better? Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. A few things to say about how emptiness comes into relationship. I think that the first thing I want to say is that when the self thins out here, there's much more um, empathy, connection, and seeing of what else is there. When Jayla talked about other sense objects being more vivid, they come more to life the less we block with our ego concerns. So that's the first thing. As you empty self, other people are more able to just be themselves. So that's the first thing. You know, emptying of self creates a space for another person to really come in. And in a way, that makes it a lot more intimate. It's just like when we're relating to emotions in meditation. When, when we're not opposing them, we feel them very closely and intimately. Right? Yeah. Um, I was wondering if there was anything about the space. Yeah, I'll get in to that. Be- in between. I'll get to that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was a prelude. So the first thing is, in emptying, we create more intimacy. The second thing is, if we're full of self, that tends to freeze the conversational space because we're not giving both people just the chance to breathe. So when the conversational space feels like it's somewhat frozen, focusing on the actual physical space can help loosen that. Just like in that early meditation today when we went from an object to feeling the space around it, it loosens the fixity of the object. Similar thing in a conversation. If it feels like a conversation is a little tight or there's a little unease or frozenness, focusing on the space, physical space, can help to soften that and soften the feeling of distance. So I, I really encourage you all to play with it in your conversations. Try being, what's it feel like to be aware of the space between and around as you're speaking? It's an an interesting thing to play with. Yes, if we could get a mic to the back. Thanks. Uh, So you did did speak to a little bit. I'm hoping you could say a little bit more about this notion of mind as normalcy or Mm -hmm. natural. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, one of my biggest gifts is my ability to to ruminate uh, endlessly. I'm very skilled at that. so I guess that would be either unnatural or not normal, except that I do that more than not. Uh, and and I, I kind of get intellectually what was said, but if you'd be willing to speak more about this notion of normalcy and natural state and mm-hmm. not only how to go there, but what that looks like, how that manifests with a bit more depth and texture. Yeah, sure. In this meditation, we're not asking or suggesting that we should stop thinking. Because, number one, the mind is just going to think anyway. That's what one of the things minds do is toss up thoughts. 
Secondly, we need thought. Certainly in daily life, we need it to carry out our tasks. We may have creative work. We may have exacting conceptual work to do. We may need to do planning. All of, all of those are reasons that we need to support the act of thinking and not try and suppress it. In general, sometimes in meditation we get the idea that thoughts are kind of an enemy because they, uh, they aren't as peaceful as when they're absent. But we, we can't stop thinking with suppression. So it's not a goal of meditation to stop thinking. The goal is to have the right relationship to thought, which is to use it when it's helpful and to let it go when it's not. But even letting it go when it's not doesn't mean that thoughts don't arise. It just means we don't chase after them. So we discover in meditation what I call the right relationship to thoughts. A lot of the time, and you'll see it in your meditation practice, we want to think. We love to think. Thoughts are very seductive. One pulls us one step further, down the rest, down the rest, down the rest. So we love thinking. There's actually a desire for thinking that we'll see in meditation. That's acting out of greed. The other side of it is not liking thinking because we think tranquility would be better and then we try to suppress them. That's acting out of aversion. So in meditation, what we learn is a relationship to thoughts where we can let them come when they come and go as they go. We don't pursue them, which would be greed, and we don't suppress them, which would be aversion. So we're open, they come, they go, no problem. Then there are times when we actually want to think, when thought is useful. And I would say that's moving out of the formal realm of meditation somewhat. So we use thoughts in our work to solve problems, to get creative ideas, to move a project forward. We use thoughts in our dharma undertaking. When I talked this morning about uh, doing study and doing reflection as integral parts of dharma practice, we're using thought for that. So when you read a book, you're dealing with concepts. Right now, we're dealing with concepts. When you um, reflect on dharma themes, you're using concepts. And that's in the service of greater understanding. So that's actually recommended. So some of this rumination is helpful and to be, you know, to be encouraged. But then we want to have more choice about it. When thought just starts going down a track that's not being helpful, how many times have I seen that thought go by? <laughs> right? Do you have some patterns like that? Oh my gosh, I thought that relationship thought 20 times this morning already. <laughs> we don't need to think it anymore. We develop an ability to say, let that one go. Uh, so finding this, usually through meditation, finding a new relationship to thought, we can use it when it's helpful and we let it go when it's not. Clears up a lot of space in the mind, but it doesn't lose the utility of thinking when we need it. The mode of function where the relationship begun, as you described, that fits as natural state or normalcy in terms okay. of that? The natural state really uh, is talking about a pure meditative state where we are uh, not trying to change or hang on to the things of sense experience that are coming through. So there's a sense of resting. We're very in touch. We're not closed off. So we know what's happening, but we don't need to hang on to them out of desire or push them away out of aversion. Thoughts will be part of that. You know, thoughts are still coming and going. So the natural state is not one where we've stopped thinking. 
That's not necessary. Thoughts will still come. But it's natural because we're not trying to make anything happen or block anything from happening. So we're resting. We're open. The things of the senses are going through. Thoughts are going through. But we're not so moved by them. You know, there's a sense we can rest in the middle of all that. And it's natural because we're not doing anything to make it happen. Yeah. Thanks. So let me just expand on this a little bit before, before we leave it. Often, before we come into meditation, we think that the I is at the center of things, making things happen. There's a sense of agency and a sense of control that we associate with the self. As that sense of self thins and it, you know, at times really goes away and we have this sense of resting, we see that that sense of agency wasn't needed. And then we start to understand why the Buddha's main teachings are all about cause and effect. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you look at the Four Noble Truths, they're about cause and effect. If you look at the law of karma, it's about cause and effect. If you look at dependent origination, it's about cause and effect. The central teachings are all about cause and effect because when you take away the agent of the I, you see that everything is just happening according to prior causes and conditions. That's all that's going on in the universe. Everything is unfolding according to natural causes and conditions. There's no one at the center who's making it happen. And in the Buddhist view, God isn't needed to explain how things are happening. Things are happening under their own laws. So there are many different laws that work in the universe. There are physical laws, chemical laws, um, biological laws, karmic laws, social laws, psychological laws. All these different laws are operating But we don't have to get in and make anything happen. And that's why this resting, we start to understand we're just part of nature. Nature is unfolding through its causes and conditions, both physical nature and mental nature. And as we understand that more and more, that's what gives us the trust to rest in non-doing. The wisdom is there, the loving kindness is there, the open-heartedness is there. We let the universe unfold as it knows how to do and we're not fighting with it so much. We're surrendering to the flow of the Dharma and the Dharma knows how to do things. Nature knows how to do what needs to be done. And as we become a part of that, then natural things come out of us too. We're also a part of that unfolding of nature when we're not clouded by self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-concern. So this is the, the way of non-doing and trust. Trusting in the laws of nature, the Dharma, to carry us. Okay. This might be a good place to take another short break. Um, we've still got a couple of important things to cover. So if you could make it about a 10-minute break, that would be great. And so we still have two important pieces to hit before we're finished with emptiness. Before, to, before we're really empty.
So, so far we've done emptiness of self, abiding in emptiness is a meditation. We've done a little bit of emptiness and awareness together, but we're going to do a little more. And right now what we're going to do is emptiness of phenomena. So if you would take a look at um, page four, we'll do some quotes. But I want to preface this by saying that um, what this is pointing to is how the quality of emptiness is in all the phenomena of the world and in our experience of them as sense objects. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And the quality of emptiness we're talking about is, is lack of substance. Things are not solid in the way that we tend to think that they are. Like we normally think this platform is really solid because I can stand on it and it doesn't crumble. That must be really solid. Is it really all solid? You know from 20th century science that it's not, right? It's atoms, protons and neutrons at the center, electrons flying around at some relative great distance. It's mostly space, right? If you contracted all the actual matter in this, it would, it would be infinitesimal. It would be tiny. So even the things that feel solid are just space. We know that from 20th century science. But the Buddha discovered this from his own meditation experience 2,500 years earlier. That's pretty cool. So we want to find this out from our meditation experience as well. So we're going to start this with just a really brief look inward through a meditative moment. I'll just ask you to, you can just sit normally, but let your eyes close. Feel relaxed again in your body. And first, just bring your attention to the sensations throughout your body. From the top of the head, through the head and neck, the shoulders and arms. Just noticing any sensations that are there, not trying to change them. The back. The chest and belly. The hips. The legs and feet. As you're in touch with all the different sensations throughout the body, please investigate. Are the sensations solid, fixed, immovable, unchanging? Or is the body more a dynamic field of changing energies where sensations are more characterized by pulsation, vibration, tingling, movement, 
change. In other words, could you grab a hold of one fixed, unchanging, solid sensation anywhere in the body? Or are they all dynamic, changing, living, moving? And now for a moment, just opening the attention to any sounds in the room. Are sounds solid, fixed, unchanging, substantial? Can you take a hold of any sound? And keep it? Or are sounds also characterized by coming and going, changing in pitch or volume, short duration. Sounds, sensations, Are they solid, substantial, graspable? Or are they moving, changing, vibrating? Anybody catch a sound? Yes. Microphone. Good. I I wondered about catching a sound, the the sound of silence, you know, inside mm-hmm. one's head. And mm-hmm. when you when you mentioned sound, that for me was something that felt constant and didn't seem to change the sound uh, of silence the sound of silence the right so i'm wondering what i'm i'm expecting just given the theme here that it should all change but that one wasn't changing so i don't know maybe maybe i wasn't insufficient maybe i was insufficiently attentive to it that could be but i i just wondered if you had a thought on the okay. not a sound and the right that right what he's referring to is there's a sound that many people hear, most of us hear when we are still, tune into the vicinity of the ear. It's sometimes called the sound of silence or a background hum in the nervous system that is like a ringing in the ears. I think when it gets louder it's called tinnitus. But most of us have a soft form of it that we can tune into. Ajahn Sumedho uses it as a meditation object. He said it's a very good concentration focus for him because it's always there. So I just suggest to keep looking at it because when I 
look at mine, it's always fluctuating a little bit. It has a, one, I think it's affected by the pulsing of my blood vessels. And I find it uh, changing in a little bit in pitch, but quite a bit in volume, moment by moment. And so I'd just say, you know, keep looking and see. Uh, It's an interesting question. And it's a good subject for meditation in any event. Yeah. In general, was it possible to catch sound? Can you stop sound? It's like the notes in a symphony, right? You're just going by, 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 by. Body sensations, solid or changing? Changing, aren't they? Yeah. So this is one of the key insights that's developed through this meditation practice taught by S.N. Goenka, which he learned from a Burmese master named Uba Kin. Looking at body sensations and you find they're all impermanent. They're all characterized by flow, not by any stickiness or solidity. So this is, these are just two pointers that the objects of the senses also are characterized by this lack of substance. And you can explore the other senses and see similar things. Smells and tastes are harder to pin down. Thoughts are very fleeting. Emotions don't last so long. So the Buddha was talking about this particularly as it relates to matter. Uh, in a discourse in the Samyutta Nikaya, which is quote number 31. Where did the microphone get to? Could you pass it left and uh, if you could read 31? Okay. Bhikkhus, um, suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great lump of foam. A person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. It would appear to that person to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a lump of foam? So too, Bhikkhus, whatever kind of material form there is, a practitioner inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it. It would appear to that person to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in material form? Thank you. This is pretty radical, isn't it? Material form, we generally take as being the only substantial thing in the world, the most substantial thing in the world. And here's the Buddha 2,500 years ago saying it's basically like a lump of foam. You know, consider this image for a minute. He's sitting by the banks of the river Ganges and asking him to imagine a big lump of foam going by. So you think about that, it's full of bubbles, right? It looks like it's got a honeycomb kind of lattice thing. But what would happen if you tried to grab that lump of foam? It'd just go squish. And it would be gone because it's all air. So the Buddha is saying that material form, which means this body and the whole physical world, is just like that. There's nothing solid there. So, story about this. I was teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock a few years ago, and I was giving a Dharma talk in the evening, so it was about 8 o'clock at night. And in the middle of the Dharma talk, there was this scream from outside. It sounded like a baby in a lot of pain. And so everybody kind of was shocked and startled. Some staff people left the hall to go see what was happening. So I continued with the Dharma talk and people stayed listening. At the end of the talk, I also wanted to go see what had happened. So I walked outside and the staff, about five or six staff, were standing around the fallen body of a deer. 
So the deer was on the ground near one of the residence halls. Its neck was bent back at an unnatural angle. And the staff said they'd checked it and the deer was dead. They also said that as they were walking out toward the deer, they saw a couple of large dogs running away into the hills. So this happens in Woodacre. It's a country town with lots of open space. There are a lot of deer in the hills and there are sometimes packs of dogs that get loose from the homes and just run around. So other animals, a couple of our neighbors had uh, two goats killed by dogs that just climbed over the fence and attacked them. This happens in Woodacre. I have never seen it at Spirit Rock. So we stood around and we chanted some metaphrases for the deer because at that time of death it may be helpful for them to have good wishes uh, coming their way. Then we left and one of the staff people went to call the Humane Society and said, we have a dead deer on the grounds. Could you come and pick it up? The Humane Society said, sure. Take it down near the entrance and we'll come by tomorrow and get it. So the staff put it in a golf cart, drove the body down near the entrance and left it by the side of the driveway that we come in and out of every day. Humane Society never came. I guess they're busy and they have other things to do. So the deer's body was by the side of the road every day for the next two weeks as I was driving in and out. And I would just continue to see what was happening. You can imagine what was happening. So we have raccoons and squirrels and skunks and badgers and insects and crows and turkey vultures. And little by little, they were just picking the deer clean. They were eating all the flesh. Until about 10 days in, all that was left were hooves, fur, and bones. Everything else had just been picked clean. That form, just like a lump of foam, gone. Just like that. Converted into energy. You know, the animals were getting calories from it and it was being converted to energy. The form was gone like a lump of foam. So this is one way we understand the meaning of this sutta. These bodies are just like foam. There's another way. The Dalai Lama was giving teachings on the Heart Sutra some years ago down at Shoreline Theater in Mountain View. Any of you see the Dalai Lama at that presentation? It was kind of this time of year. I think it was May. It was, you know, beautiful weather. It was three days of teachings. And if you know Shoreline, there's a big uh, amphitheater of seats in an arc looking up to a big stage. So the Dalai Lama was on a throne on the stage so everybody could see him. And uh, sitting around the stage were monastics, monks and nuns from all the Buddhist lineages. So there were the bright red and yellow robes of the Tibetans the dark brown robes of the Theravadan monks and nuns, the gray robes of Korean Zen, the black robes of Japanese Zen, all over the stages. It felt like a Buddhist Woodstock, actually. It's like <laughs> all the tribes are out, you know, celebrating the Dalai Lama. And behind him, all across the stage, was this huge painting of the Potala Palace, which is where he had lived before he had to flee the country. The Potala Palace was a big painting on the back where the Grateful Dead speakers would have been if it had been a dead concert. 
So we were there just soaking up the teachings on the Heart Sutra, which is a text all about emptiness. So as the Dalai Lama was getting into the theme of emptiness, he said, there are three forms of suffering in Buddhism, and you have to understand these if you want to help people. The first two are easiest to see, and the third is the hardest to see. So the first one is what's called the suffering of suffering. It's called dukkha dukkha. That's kind of like your double shot of espresso. <laughs> dukkha dukkha means the unhappiness of direct pain. It might be physical pain, it might be emotional pain, but it's just the direct experience of pain. And everybody has that at different times. We have dukkha dukkha. The second form of suffering is what's called viparinama dukkha, which means the dukkha of alternation. So things are going along fine, comfortable, enjoyable, pleasant, and then at some point it changes because everything changes. So simple example, we go to Double Rainbow and we order a great bowl of ice cream and then it ends. Bowl of ice cream is over. Oh, what a bummer. Might still be wanting some, but it's gone. But on a more you know, intense level, we are in health, good health, for perhaps a long time, and that changes. We become ill. And that's the pain of alternation. We've lost that comfort. A third kind, he said, is the hardest to see. Mostly you have to be a meditator to see this third kind. It's the pain of unstable formations. In Pali, it's called Sankara Dukkha. And what he means by that, he explained, is impermanence is more than just once in a while. He said it's not that things go along solidly for a long time and then change. If you look at things moment to moment, they're changing moment by moment. Nothing goes along solidly for any length of time at all. But if you look closely at the nature of things, our experience is arising and passing and dissolving moment after moment after moment. So you look at any sense door, body sensations, nothing is constant. Sounds, nothing is constant. Smells and tastes, they're so light, don't even try to hold on. Moods and emotions, almost as soon as you see an emotion, often it can just poof. Very light. Thoughts go through totally insubstantial. So this is what he was pointing to, the moment-by-moment dissolving of our sense experience. But there's one sense door that is harder to see that in than any other, and that is sight. So let's play with this sense of sight for a while. So we've dealt with um, sound, smell, taste, sensations, thoughts, and emotions, we've seen the insubstantiality there, but let's take a look at sight. Because when I look at that wall, it looks solid to me. When you look at this wall behind me, doesn't it look solid? So sight leads us to think that we really live in a solid world, but let's examine it a little bit. How does the sight of the wall arise in your eye? Light bounces off the wall, reflects back into your eye, stimulates the retina, which sends a signal over the optic nerve to the brain. Brain decodes it, and then, bingo, sight of wall appears. Nobody knows how a signal in your brain leads to the sight of the wall. 
Scientists don't understand this. Neuroscientists haven't even gotten close. You know, physicists don't know. Psychologists don't know. How does nerve signal translate into sight? Nobody knows. So there's a big mystery there. But the important thing is that the sight of wall doesn't arise unless light hits retina, retina sends nerve signal, brain decodes it, and sight is constructed. The sight of the wall is built out of light, the eye, the signals, the brain, and your consciousness. What happens if you take away the flow of light? What if it was all went dark in here? Could you still see the wall? No. It relies on that light triggering the retina many, many, many times a second. We know now there are millions of photons hitting that retina millions of times a second. So is that sight actually solid? Or is it only being generated microsecond after microsecond after microsecond to appear before us? The sight of the wall isn't solid. It's only a construction of sight, eye, nervous system, and brain, and consciousness. It's an appearance in consciousness generated by all those factors. You take away the light, appearance goes away. So the sight is not actually what we'd call the real world. Do you know what the wall really is? I don't. How could we know? Because all we can do is receive it through our senses. So when we walk around, we think we're seeing the real world. We don't know what the real world is. We're seeing a representation of the real world constructed by our sense organs, our nervous system, and our consciousness. So we're living in a world that's just an appearance in consciousness. But we take it to be a solid, real thing. That's not the world of the senses. That's not the world we live in. The world of the senses is a fabrication. It's a useful fabrication, but it's a fabrication. We forget that. We think we're seeing the real world. We think we're living in the real world. We're living in a representation of the world. Here's a question. I'm just going to focus on the... No, here's a better... Better one. Use this one. Here we have a Zafu. Does everybody see it as blue? Okay, we have a blue Zafu. So the question is, where is blue? Now, normally we think the blue is here, but when you reflect on how blue comes into your experience, you know that actually this Zafu cover is re- receiving and retaining every other color but blue, and it's only reflecting the blue to your eyes. So red, orange, yellow are being absorbed, and the blue is being reflected. So if the Zafu is anything, it's red, orange, and yellow. (laughs) What it's definitely not is blue. But it looks blue to us. So where is blue? It's not here. Blue is a construction of our consciousness, isn't it? Question? 
Uh, could we get a mic toward the back? Yeah. It's good for the people at home to hear. So I'm following what you're saying, but I'm also a little confused, especially with the with the wall. Okay. In that, like, say I were a bat, I couldn't see, but I'd still know there was a wall. And even if I couldn't see and I tried to run, I would hit the wall. And so there are some properties that maybe the way we are perceiving the wall is generated in our mind, but it seems like as far as I, I can know, there's some, some consequences to ignoring other realities. So can maybe you could explain that to me or something. <laughs> no, this is really true. There are consequences of assuming, for instance, if you assume that you could pass through the wall, or if you assume that you could stand in front of an oncoming bus and you wouldn't experience any impact, that's not true. But what we forget is just the bare sensory nature of the image. All we're seeing is an image. Even when we touch, it's just the sensation of hardness that's generated by, you know what it is, it's the electric fields of these atoms running into these atoms. The electrons repel each other. And that's why they can't pass through, and that's why it feels solid. Neither of them is solid, but the electrical repulsion is so strong that it can't pass through. So that's all true. And bats, of course, have a different sensory system. And we use all these assumptions about the world to navigate, and it works in a certain way. Just don't forget that that's just an appearance in consciousness. what we take to be the real physical world is only an appearance in consciousness. So one of my teachers put it like this. Nothing that appears to your senses has any substantial existence whatsoever. It doesn't mean that there isn't something in what we call wall. I'm not trying to deny the existence of the wall. There's something there. We can use it to lean against, to hold up the building, etc., But don't forget that what we see as wall is just an appearance of the senses. So the illusion is when Indian philosophers talk about maya as illusion, it's not the illusion that something's there. The illusion is we think it's solid when it's not. So all the physicists know that wall isn't solid 